Okay. Welcome back, everybody. This is Myth Busting uh, here at Web Yeshiva with, with me, Uri Cohen. Today's date is May 20th, and we are up to the fifth uh, out of 13 sessions of, uh, of this course. Um, and I'm going to skip the quote at the beginning because we'll, we'll come back to it. Uh, we have our, uh, our seven, seven topics following the same pattern as, uh, as the last uh, number of weeks. And uh, let's get started with an urban legend. And now you could argue that this is less, is less likely to fit into the category, into what we usually do in this course, which is mostly urban legends that Orthodox Jews uh, are mistakenly uh, uh, under their impression that are true, but they're really not true. This one's you're more likely to find in non-Orthodox circles. Some Orthodox Jews have sex through a hole in a sheet. So I thought it was interesting that this uh, this is one of the few uh, write-ups uh, about Jews and Judaism on the website Snopes. Uh, Snopes, the Urban Legends of Reference pages. It's still around, uh, although it's not the only show in town. It's not the only uh, website that uh, that investigates. Uh, but it's uh, uh, they have some good stuff there. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Barbara Mickelson, who wrote this article and over a thousand other articles uh, at Snopes, and while she was married to the uh, other main person, um, they have since gotten divorced, and she sold out uh, her half of the uh, of the uh, whatever the the rights to the website. After which, her husband or his staff people removed her name from uh, all of the articles. So if you go to the uh, to this uh, address, you'll see that not only do they change the title, which is fine, it doesn't make a difference, but they also, it now says, by Snopes staff, which I think is uh, not fair. Just because somebody uh, doesn't own the rights does not mean that you should not give them uh, any credit. Uh, she wrote a lot of the stuff. They got started in the 90s, and most, a lot, much, if not most, of their early materials from her. Anyway, so... Claim Orthodox Jews have marital relations through a hole in a sheet. Status false. So if you look at the uh, Snopes webpage, it'll have like a red button. Uh, how does it go? Red for false, green for true. Uh, and then there's yellow and white. Yellow is partly true and white is undetermined or vice versa. I like the idea of that there's more than just two possibilities for whether something's true or not. But I also especially like the way that uh, Barbara Mickelson frames this. Before, this is not the entire article. This is just the introduction. When, why, not just, is this true? No, it's not true. How do you know it's not true? We'll get to that shortly. But why would somebody believe this sort of thing? So she suggests um, part of belonging to any group is the need to believe it's the best of its kind. And that holds true even when the groups in question are different religions or even sects within the same religion. Maybe even even how much more so if they are within the same uh, religion. One needs to feel comforted that one has made the right choice and is indeed on the right path after all. Consequently, bits of wild misinformation about what goes on in the other camp, those bits often get circulated as truth because these tales serve to confirm the rightness of one's own choice. So not only does that explain uh, some uh, nasty urban legends about Jews that 
non-Jews have believed for uh, for centuries. But this is in the category of the like crazy people do things like that. And if you want to believe that Orthodox Jews are uh, are crazy, you know, you think they're the ones who throw stones at you. You think they uh, they don't live in uh, in the century, etc. So. The the crazier the uh, the rumor, you know, the maybe the more likely you are to uh, to believe it, and that's uh, it's a problem. Uh, the good news is it's easier to check out these things uh, than it used to be, but it is something to think about. In other words, uh, if Barbara Mickelson is correct, well, then this is this is not something about Jews per se. This particular one is, but the tendency it's a, uh, something that we all have. We all want to believe that we're better. Our group is better. We've chosen the best group. So we, are, we have a tendency or more, we are susceptible, I should say, to believing uh, the worst about people of, uh, of other groups. So when we hear, sooner or later we will hear uh, rumors uh, about, uh, or whatever, ridiculous things, terrible things about people from, uh, from other groups. And uh, we should try to give people the benefit of the doubt. So... Um, the way that uh, that Rabbi Shmuel Boter uh, uh, phrased it, this was part of an article in defense of Israel, and he used this as his introduction. He says, through countless lectures that I've delivered around the world, I've discovered that the vast majority of people actually believe this to be true. And many films have portrayed this to be true. It's one of the most ludicrous slanders against Jews, and yet hundreds of millions of people believe it. That's a lot of people. I don't know if it's that many, but that's he's saying in his own experience. Then he goes on to explain that that's not actually the case. Uh, the uh, he doesn't give the the references, but if uh, you look in the uh, what is it Shulchan Aruch Orachaim Siman Reish Mem, and there's a, a parallel in in your that there 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 are some different opinions as to the details of uh, uh, prov proper standards for uh, for having sex but for starters you know if even if you don't haven't actually learned that material you might have heard that when a a couple uh, are getting a uh, are following the their rabbi of getting permission to use birth control and they ask what kind of birth control should we use so the answer is always going to be use the type that does not interfere with sex um, and that's why the pill is usually considered to be the best. Diaphragm is, uh, is, is debatable, but for sure not condoms, because aside from the fact that it, uh, it usually comes with a spermicide, but it's an obstruction. It's a, it's a barrier method, and that's, that's separate from the issue of contraception. That, that, uh, in, that um, creates a problem with the expected uh, physical contact uh, between the husband and wife during sex. So the point is, if you just knew that, if you knew, I know most people who are not Jews and certainly not Orthodox, uh, uh, non-Orthodox Jews would be in this category also. If they, ha if they don't know this, so then they don't have this way of evaluating. Wait, but in light of this, in this paragraph, and Rabbi Botech is not saying anything controversial in this, uh, in light of this paragraph, then it doesn't make any sense that, that this thing that, that people are, are sitting about the hole in the sheet. Right. So Rabbi Boter says, putting in context, throughout history, of some pretty weird stuff, yet amazingly the world always seems to believe it. First, we are accused of having killed God. Well, that would be by the early Christians and a lot of later Christians as well. And then that we poisoned the wells of Europe during the Black Death, that we tortured the, uh, the crackers of the Eucharist. Um, 
And then we are accused of slaughtering Christian children, you know, the blood libel. Oh, and finally, our elders, those famous elders of Zion, gathered together to plot the conquest of the world. And in each of these cases, ridiculous as the accusations might seem, they're still believed by hundreds of millions of people the world over. In other words, if you start with the assumption that Jews are crazy, Jews are weird, they're different from us, uh, we're better than them, then maybe, maybe that uh, somebody who starts with that assumption is susceptible to believing uh, any, anything, no matter how crazy, about the, uh, the group that they are uh, already disliking. And then he goes on to say, and then now the majority of the world believes that tiny Israel is the cause of strife in the Middle East. Uh, no, he did not write this uh, this week. He wrote it in uh, 2004. Um, one, one more uh, reflection on this um, subject. By the way, you won't find this subject addressed in the halachic sources because the halachic sources tend not to be responding to people who are don't know anything about, uh, about Jews and Judaism. But Gil Mann who uh, I think for a while he was the head of the Jewish Federation of, of Minnesota. And he's written a bunch of articles, Jewish stuff, uh, over the years. Uh, he wrote this piece uh, that was published in the New Jersey Jewish News in 2002, and he asked six different rabbis about this rumor. And um, three of the so first, all six of them said they knew next to nothing about this. In other words, this is not something, there's not like an opinion out there within the halacha. Um, three of the rabbis told me that, in their opinion, this alleged sheet practice would be a violation of Jewish law. Jewish law encourages full contact between a husband and wife during sex. Um, so this, go, this is basically the same thing that, that we saw quoted by Rabbi Boter. Um, one rabbi told me, he's speculated, and I've seen other, other people speculate this as well, maybe the rumor is a result of non-Jews seeing tzitzit, a talit katan, hanging from a clothesline, like from a distance. And, and assuming it must be a sheet with a hole in it, which also doesn't make any sense based on the size of a Tawid Katan. And the, but could be, could be that that's, that's how our rumors get started. But Rabbi number six, I'm sorry that he didn't give any of the names, uh, had the most plausible explanation. He called me back to say, perhaps the rumor comes from, in other words, look, the, the, the blood libel, that, that's totally made up, you know, that we eat matzah on Pesach, that's true. But that matzah would be made with, Blood, aside from the fact that we're not allowed to, to kill people, aside from the fact that we're not allowed to eat blood, uh, if, if you made matzah with blood, it would be pink. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be that pale color that, uh, uh, that all matzah is. Okay, you know, a different course called Jewish Mythbusting might focus on anti-Semitic uh, myths. I tend not to do that in this course, but it could be that while those are not based on anything, it could be that this is based on maybe, maybe could be totally made up, but maybe there is a little-known Jewish divorce law that speaks of a spouse willing to have sex only through a sheet, which is grounds for divorce from the other partner. Um, and where is this? Before I saw this article, I saw this. Um, my wife mentioned the first time years ago, uh, I told her I was researching the subject. She said, well, but it's against the Gemara and Ketuvot. And it turns out, all you need to know is this Gemara Ketuvot Daf Memchet, which is quoted in the sh- for practical purposes in the Shulchan Aruch Evan Ezer, in um, uh, in the laws of marriage and divorce. Uh, the way the Gemara formulates it is Rav Yosef quoting the beginning of of Parsha Mishpatim on She'irak Sutav Onata, three uh, Torah obligations that husband has to his wife. Different interpretations as to what these three are, but. Uh, Rav Yosef says, Sheira Zukiruv Basar. This is 
context of the sin. Namely, the Torah is saying, don't do like the Persians do. I guess the Persians at the time of the Gemara. When they have sex, uh, they, uh, they keep their clothes on. And the Torah is saying, it's not just that's a bad idea, that's against the Torah obligation that a husband has to his wife of not only having sex, which is the, what we call the mitzvah of, of Ona, but according to Rav Yosef anyway, included in that is, included in that is that uh, they're not, the husband and wife are not allowed to have clothes on. And this statement supports the other statement, different statement of Rav Huna, who said, how Omer, if uh, part one of the uh, married couple, if they come to Beitin, and uh, and Beitin are need to decide, are these uh, uh, one of them wants a divorce? Is it appropriate to have a divorce? Haomer, if one of them says, if she let's say the husband says to uh, to the Beitin, uh, I refuse, I refuse to have sex with my wife unless I'm wearing my clothes and she's wearing her clothes. I. That's the only way I'll be able to uh, continue having having sex with with my wife. If a man says that to Beitin, Yotzi, he's obligated to divorce her. The notain ketuva, and he pays the ketuva because it's his fault. He made a condition which is unacceptable, and there's different levels of unacceptable. This is unacceptable at the point where um, that's totally grounds for divorce, and it's totally his fault. And the assumption is the other way as well. If she came to Beitin and said, I refuse, except then she would, uh, the Beitin would tell the husband to give her a divorce and not to pay her too, but because it's her fault. Point is, this is not just one of many details that you'll find in books about halacha and sex, but this is one of the few where it would be grounds for divorce. If anybody knows this Gemara or this Shulchan Aruch, then they would be able to explain to whoever's, uh, has heard this this crazy rumor that not only is that not true, but it's exactly the opposite of um, of the halacha. Okay, but uh, this tends to be, I think Rabbi Boteach is correct here, I think this tends to be in the category of not Jewish urban legends, but urban legends that uh, people who don't know anything about Judaism uh, will believe, especially uh, anti-Semites. Not only anti-Semites, but uh, like, like we said, they are uh, predisposed to it. Moving right along, an unlikely story. Okay, this is actually, um, we're going to do two stories that both involve uh, Kol Isha and a rabbi. Kol Isha, of course, is the rabbinic prohibition for a man to listen to a woman singing. Um, this, uh, this is from the book called Making of a Gadol. Uh, infamous book, You'll, it has its own Wikipedia entry. Uh, Rav Nassim Kamenetsky, who died uh, just two years ago, um, the author of this book, this was a biography of his father, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, and the book was banned by Haredi Gedolim for saying all sorts of stories about his father and other rabbis making them look human, or other things that were apparently a whole list of, of things that were unacceptable to, uh, to certain Haredi Gedolim. Uh, and he retracted the book, and then he reissued it in an improved edition, and that's going to become relevant uh, shortly. So there's a lot of stories in this book. Oh, he retracted the book, so it's officially not in print. But if you know where to go on the internet, you could find a PDF of uh, Making of a Gadol, uh, first edition. So in his introduction 
He talks about the nature of stories, which is what we're doing here. There may be some stories in this book known to some readers and family members um, of which the author may have a different understanding. For example, I was told by my son, Rav Yosef, that Rav Shlomo Fisher, a very prominent Dayan uh, in, uh, in Israel, told him that Rav Yitzchak Kulitz, uh, who passed away in 2003, he was the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim for over two decades. And important detail here, earlier Rav Kulitz had, re had received smicha from Rav Isra Zalman Melter, the rabbi we're about to refer to. Rav Kulitz was incensed. He was very angry with the reaction of a present-day Rosh Hashiva, who will be unnamed. Reaction of that Rosh Hashiva to a story that he was told about, here's the story, Rav Isra Zalman Meltzer, I should add, he died in 1953. He was a famous Lithuanian posek who taught at the Slobodka Yeshiva before uh, he moved to Israel. He was a friend of Rav Kook. His uh, son-in-law became famous in his own right. That would be Rav Aaron Cutler, who founded the uh, Lakewood Yeshiva. Uh, Rav Isherzon Melter was going up to his house. He overheard the cleaning lady singing to herself while washing the floor. Rav Isherzon went back down to the street and paced for a long time until she finished her work, and then he came home. So the unnamed Rosh Yeshiva understood Rav Isherzon's action as indicative of how careful he was in avoiding Koisha. For the just for the time it would have taken him to walk from the from the middle of the staircase until entering his home, when of course the woman would certainly have stopped singing. Wow, anybody else would have just listened to the woman singing for those few seconds until he got home. But Mr. Zalman Meltzer was so so uh, uh, careful about Kalisha, he didn't even want to hear that for those few seconds. So he went in the other direction. That's misunderstanding of the story, says Rav Kulitz, who. As we said, was a student of Rav Isherzalman. In actuality, Rav Isherzalman was concerned that when he would walk into the house, the woman who enjoyed singing while on the job, she would be inconvenienced by having to stop singing for the rest of her working time. So it turns out this is not just Rav Kuwitz's interpretation, because you could say, well, there's two different people who interpret the other uh, story. It turns out that Rav Meltzer's grandson, who uh, wrote a bio definitive biography of him, wrote it with the version of Rav Kulitz, namely that he said his grandfather, Rav Isra Zalman, the rabbi in the story, he himself, he himself explained his action without any reference to Koisha. And in fact, he paced on the porch just outside the door, not, not that he went back down to the street. He just paced outside the, uh, the door and presumably he could hear her singing, but she wouldn't have known about it. He didn't want to interrupt her. So Rav Kulitz was fuming about the misinterpretation because... This, this Rosh Hashiva had missed out on Rav Isser Zalman's extraordinary consideration for people. Meaning, if you knew Rav Isser Zalman like I knew Rav Isser Zalman, you would know that the reason he wouldn't have walked in is because he was thinking about, about the cleaning lady and he didn't want to bother her in any way at all. And since she, of course, would have stopped singing when the rabbi uh, walked in, so therefore he didn't walk in. He was thinking about her, not about Koisha. That's the... Uh, example that Rav Kamenetsky gives of sometimes there's more than one interpretation of a story. And in the footnote on that page, note M, as in KLM, he mentions that there's a similar story about the rabbi now walking in regarding Rav, Rav Yeshaper Brisk, meaning uh, Rabbi Salvechik's uh, 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 great-grandfather. And then, same point was brought out, here's the other story. Rav Yaakov Yitzchak Ruderman. 
Uh, he died in 1987. He was the founding Rosh Hashiva of Nerisro in Baltimore. He had previously been a student in Slobodka. The other rabbis involved in the story were, were all connected with, with Slobodka. Rav Ruderman um, was speaking with some Torah educators, and he, and he told them the special stress that the yeshiva he had been at, Slobodka Yeshiva, put on interpersonal relations. And he told the following story. In the 1930s, he, Rav Ruderman, was once invited to spend Shabbat at the home of Rav Prail, the Rav of Elizabeth, New Jersey. Uh, he died not long afterwards. Rav Prail died in, in 1933. He had also learned in Slobodka, like Rav Ruderman. He was a Rosh Hashiva at Ritz, uh, and later he became the, uh, the Rav of, of Elizabeth. So Rav Ruderman was spending Shabbat at the home of Rav Prail. Before Shabbat, the Rav, Rav Prail, took him aside told his guest he had daughters eating at the Shabbat table, and they enjoyed Shabbat by singing Zmirot, by singing the Shabbat songs. Rav Prail told Rav, the young Rav Ruderman that Rav Baruch Berovich, interrupting here just to say who he was, he died in 1939. He was the Rosh Hashiva of Kamenetz back in Europe. He visited America in 1928 with his son-in-law, Rav Ruven Grozovsky, to raise funds for his yeshiva. And he was known for being um, a brilliant, but also in some ways very, uh, very extremist. Uh, so Rav Prail told the younger Rav Ruderman that previously Rav Bar had been a guest at the home, and when the Rav's daughters had begun singing Zmirot, Rabarach Bear stood up and ran out of the room, uh, disturbing Shabbat for the guests and humiliating their father. So the host, Rav Prail, then asked Rav Ruderman, are you going to do the same thing? And he replied, no, with my Swabudka background, as we just said, Rav Isra Zalman, also, like, you, you think, put yourself in other person's shoes, try to think all the, all the time of how you can help other people. He would not destroy the family's Shabbat spirit or embarrass his host. No, he would remain sitting and just, just not listen to, uh, to the girl singing. Rav Ruderman con concluded, my from kite does not have to hurt others. So Rav Ruderman told this story about himself much, much later to, uh, um, to, uh, to uh, the next generation. That's, all this is in Making of a Gadol, first edition. But because Rav Kamenetsky changed a bunch of things for the second edition. He left in everything that we said just now, but he added in a footnote near the end of the expanded uh, uh, introduction. This is note W. Apropos note M, which is what we just saw, it was brought to my attention, as we're about to see, three or four descendants of the people involved of Prayal's family wrote to him or called him and said, you got the story totally wrong. A granddaughter of said Elizabeth rabbi, Dr. Rifka Blau, whom I know through uh, the uh, Blau family of Yeshiva University. Rav Yosef Blau has been the Mashkiach Ruchani there for, for many years, and uh, they have three sons, and um, each one became a uh, uh, rabbi and uh, teacher. Anyway, R Dr. Rifka Blau wrote a biography of her father, Rav Mordechai Pinchas Taitz, who uh, he became the Rav of Elizabeth in New Jersey after, uh, after Rav Prail. Uh, Rav Tights founded JEC, whose high school is now called the Rav Tights Masifta Academy. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, Dr. Blau's mother, uh, Basia, was Basia Prail, one of the girls in the, in the story. She married 
uh, Rav, uh, Rav Tights. So Dr. Rivka Tights Blau. Anyway, in her book, she denies the accuracy of the story, and she claims the name of her mother and aunt. Her mother was Basia Tights, and her aunt was Hannah Raymond. She married Rav Pesach Raymond, who founded the uh, Mariah Yeshiva, also in New Jersey, which is now called the Rabbi, Pe- Rabbi Pesach Raymond Yeshiva. Anyway, point is, the family has a version of the story that's different from Rav Ruderman's version, that her mother and aunt, the daughters, here's what happened, okay? It's not that Rav Baruch Bear ran out of the room. When the girls started singing Zmirot, a student accompanying Rav Baruch Bear asked his rabbi why he wasn't leaving the, the room. And Rav Baruch Bear replied, it's tefillot. There's no problem with kolisha and, and, and davening in the Zmirot. This is just davening. So even the famous Rav Baruch Bear, meaning famous for being an extremist in certain areas, he was not an extremist uh, in, this, uh, in this area. Uh, a different relative told Rabbi Kamenetsky it wasn't Zmirot, it was Birkat Mazon, but they, they were singing. Then Rav Lazar Mayor Tights, brother of Dr. Blau, told Rav Kamenetsky that the student of Rav Baruch Bear wasn't his student, it was his son-in-law, whom we already mentioned had come uh, with him to America. And the exact reply, remember, this is a story from the 1930s, but the, the family has kept the story with, if not word for word, then pretty close, that Rebarach Bear told his son-in-law, they're only, they're only praising the one above with, uh, with a melody. So maybe he didn't say davening, maybe he said praising. Okay, and one more version uh, from the family, Rav Shmuel Landisman, another great, great-grandchild of Rav Prail, I wrote Rav Kamenetsky, that he heard from his grandmother many times that what happened was that Rav Ruvain, the son-in-law, stood up to leave the room, and Rebarach Bear told him to sit down. And just, just not listen, not only did Rav Baruch Bear not leave, but he told his son-in-law not to leave. The issues that are involved in the story are not so, so different between the different versions, but actually there is a big difference between did Rav Baruch Bear walk out saying, the main thing is I can't, I'm not allowed to listen to women singing, uh, and he didn't care about uh, an embarrassment, or he say, no, no, really, he did care. And his son-in-law was the one who made the mistake, the equivalent, I suppose, of uh, Rav Shemar Bar Yochai and his son coming out of the cave the second time when uh, Rav Shemar Bar Yochai has already, has already come to the realization that, that there's value in what, what everybody does who's not in the cave. And uh, his, son, his son in the story, in the Gemara, is still setting things on fire by looking at them. Rav Shemar Bar Yochai is, is healing it. Anyway... So this is a story in which Rav Ruderman, he wasn't there at the original story, but he was there at the follow-up, and decades later he, rem- he remembered, apparently incorrectly, the story that Rav Prail had told him about Rav Bear. But all the descendants, at least the three or four descendants quoted here, of uh, Rav Prail, they remember the story more uh, differently, and they all made a point of passing it on to their, their descendants because it makes, it makes a big difference in practice. Uh, are, is it allowed for uh, women and girls to sing Zmirot at a Shabbos table uh, or not? Remember, this is before the Sridi Aish who wrote his famous tshuva about uh, Koisha and Zmirot. This, was, this, was, uh, this, the, this, this whole thing predates it. Anyway, I thought there was an interesting example of uh, watch out Watch out stories you believe. Sometimes the people who were there remember it uh, differently. Okay.
moving right along to our next uh, topic, which is street Torah. Uh, street Torah is when we we uh, quote an opinion that everybody thinks is the only opinion, and it turns out it is an opinion, but it's only one opinion, and not even necessarily the majority opinion. Remember last time we mentioned if a Sefer Torah falls, you have to fast for 40 days? Well, 40 is this number that appears in a bunch of times in the Torah and appears in yet another urban legend. You have to be 40 in order to learn Kabbalah. You're not allowed to learn Kabbalah, the, uh, the mystical parts of Jewish tradition, until you are 40. So Rabbi Ari Zavitovsky, uh, we usually do one of his uh, uh, articles uh, in each session. He has a, a piece on this. This is just the rest of this page is just bits and pieces of his uh, of his article. The summary is the appropriate time to commence study of the esoteric dimension of Torah is determined or should be determined by one's level of Torah knowledge and spiritual development, not by one's age. Meaning, yes, we do find a bunch of sources that speak about the danger of going too deep too early, and the famous story that he mentions briefly from the Gemara about the four who entered the Pardes, uh, literally the orchard, but the Rambam says it's Masa Merkava, the, the, the chariot, the study of the heavenly chariot, whatever that means. Uh, we, we theoretically read about it on Shavuot, uh, that, the Haftorah, but uh, presumably it's some uh, deeper interpretation that is not the simple meaning of the psukim in Yechezkel. So the four rabbis who went in, only one of them, Rabbi Kiva, came out okay. So that's like a, a cautionary tale that's in the Gemara itself. And the Rambam says you shouldn't stroll through the Pardes until your stomach is full of bread and meat. And then he tells you bread and meat is to know what is Asur, what is Mutar, in other words, basic, basic halacha. It makes sense to say that Everybody who's following halacha needs to know basic halacha, and a few people can can study on the on the advanced uh, levels. You might have heard of what the Rashba said as part of the Maimonidean controversy, where the Rambam's own writings were uh, um, were considered controversial because he brought in philosophy. So the Rashba um, from uh, Christian Spain, who was not a fan of philosophy, he issued a ban on studying philosophy and science for anyone younger than 25. Okay. So you could argue that 25 is arbitrary, but uh, I'm not sure if there were any communities that, that actually uh, followed that. Um, the uh, uh, the Ramah, um, in, his, in, his, in commenting on the Shulchan Aruch, speaking about studying general studies, uh, the Ramah seems to equate, seems kind of weird to us, but he equates Kabbalah and philosophy. Those are both types of things you would study that are not mainstream Torah. Uh, and, uh, but the Ramah says that uh, really, he quote, quotes the Rambam, that really you should uh, first study the basics, the, uh, the, the meat and wine. On this Ramah, the Shah, one of the main commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch, says, and some say you should not learn Kabbalah until you're 40. There you have it. Somebody said it. Okay? There you go. One opinion uh, which is not, uh, which did not become the, the mainstream opinion, but yes, you could find it there. Uh, and then Rabbi Zevitovsky goes on to quote a bunch of, of others. There was one other uh uh, opinion that mentioned 40, and that is uh, in 1756, uh, the Brody Cherem, Cherem like excommunication, that was responding to the Sabatians, the followers of Shabtai Tzvi, 
who a hundred years after Shabtai Tzvi were still uh, uh, causing rifts or, or doing their own thing different from mainstream Judaism. And um, apparently the, the, uh, the Chayarim of, of 1756, besides banning Sabatianism, also banned the study of Lurianic Kabbalah, like the Arizal. Uh, Arizal is Rav Yitzchak Luria, if you're under 40. But you could still learn, learn Zohar if you're over 30. I'm not sure what the distinction there is. But if you're looking for some source about 40, there you have it. But it's not like this became, it's not like it's quoted in later sources. Rabbi Zivotofsky goes on to point out that not only did uh, Hasidim incorporate Kabbalah into Hasidut, but the Vilna Gon, who was the head of the opponents, the Misnagdim, uh, to the Hasidim, he was a huge Kabbalist. And not only that, but he encouraged his followers to learn Kabbalah as well. So really in the last few hundred years, Kabbalah has become more, um, um, more widespread, uh, more mainstream, as Rabbi Zivotofsky points out. Today, the study of Kabbalah has become popular in the general culture and in academia. And that's not just the, like, uh, uh, what's it called? The International Research Center for Kabbalah, which it, we, we tend to like to make fun of that it's a cult and you have celebrities and holy water and, and et cetera, et cetera, and they're not really learning the original texts. No, but a lot of people really are learning the original texts, especially now that the Zohar has been uh, translated into English. I don't mean the Sonsino one, I mean the, the one by Professor Daniel Matt, like the full thing. I forgot how many volumes that is. Um, but uh, Kabbalah, as in the Zohar, is more accessible now than it used to be. And through, as translated or adapted by Hasidut and the followers of Rav Kook, Kabbalah is also very, very uh, much more widespread than it used to be. Rabbi Zivotofsky concludes his article by pointing out many major Kabbalists throughout history did not even live to see their 40th birthday, like the Arizal, like the Ramchal. And from America, uh, Rabbi Arya Kaplan, yeah, he lived till, what is it, 48? Um, 49. He clearly had begun studying Kabbalah before the age of 40. So the point is, anybody who says, I heard that you're not allowed to learn Kabbalah until you're 40, that's not correct. You, it is a bad idea to learn anything advanced like Kabbalah until you have passed the basics. And what does that mean? It depends on the person. To make an absolute rule is, is kind of bizarre, which is why it's not really, has not really been, uh, uh, been accepted, uh, this 40 thing. Folk etymology. Teku. Teku is a word that appears at the end of a lot of Gemara discussions. Uh, instead of uh, uh, coming to a conclusion, the Gemara will say Teku. Now, the uh, urban legend is that Teku is Roshi Tevot. It's an acronym. It stands for Tishbi Yitareitz Kushiot Vibayot. Eliyahu will resolve all difficulties. Now, the idea that Eliyahu, Eliyahu is, uh, is coming to herald Mashiach, that's not just a Tarsh that, that That's in Tarsh HaBachetav. It's in the Haftar Shabbat Agadol, in Bar Mitzvah, uh, Haftorah, uh, that Hashem says, I will, in Malachi, Hashem says, I will send Eliyahu before, before that, that great day. So presumably Eliyahu will come back. And Pshat in Tanakh is that Eliyahu didn't die. He went, went up to heaven, whatever, whatever that means. So it turns out, that, forget the uh, teku for a minute, the idea that Eliyahu in the future will resolve our debates, that's 
a mainstream tradition. It appears in the Mishnah. It's not the only opinion. There's a debate. What will Eliyahu do when he comes back? One of the opinions is uh, that Eliyahu will be mashvot hamachloket. In other words, he will he'll work things out. That The idea that Eliyahu, part of Eliyahu coming back, will, will work things out. After all, Eliyahu has been in heaven. He's been going back and forth in folk tradition between heaven and earth uh, for thousands of years. So, so he's the great, great one to be able to reconcile heaven and earth. That idea, that's not an urban legend. The urban legend is to say that that's incorporated into the word teku. Let's go back briefly to the quote that I started the source sheet with. This is from the book, which I left in the other room. Ballyhoo Buckaroo and Spuds uh, by Michael Quinion, who works for the Oxford English Dictionary and uh, has or used to have a, a website called Worldwide Words. And he describes what, what I'm calling folk etymology. He calls etymology. There are two specific kinds that continually recur. One, which we'll, we'll skip the, the second one, but one argues that a given word has been created as an acronym from the initial letters of a, phase, of a phrase. Well, you've heard of, uh, uh, of these, you know, posh. Posh, that means fancy in British English. That really stands for port out starboard home or some other uh, acronym. Um, so Michael Quinion points out there are almost no, in English anyway, there are almost no examples of words of acronymic origin before 1900. Yeah, we have a bunch of them now, whether because of military or science. But in general, if you're trying to figure out the origin of a word, the last option should be that it's, uh, that it's actually an abbreviation. You know what? I'll we'll just say the second one. The, another, the other type of mistake that he refers to is to assume that because a word exists in English and a similar sounding word with much the same meaning exists in another language, the two must necessarily be connected. He says, you know what? It's not true. Chance sound resemblances across languages and even among words with similar senses are surprisingly easy to find. They mean nothing in themselves. In fact, just, just today, uh, Richie asked me uh, about uh, the claim that copacetic, uh, a very strange 20th century word uh, in American English that means uh, uh, great, cool, that copacetic, maybe it's from the Hebrew hakol beseder. Right, because the African-Americans in Harlem in the 1920s knew modern Hebrew. You know, it's a, just because if you say one phrase quickly, it sounds a little like the other phrase, does not mean they have anything to do with each other. Apparently, copacetic has a bunch of, of different suggestions, uh, and this is one of the weirder ones. Anyway, so the idea that maybe Eliyahu, maybe that the idea that is in the Mishnah, that Eliyahu in the future will resolve our debates, that that's the meaning of teku, this goes back to... 1300s, 1400s, people have been repeating it for a long time, but for just as long, grammarians have been saying, no, no, we know what the word teku means. Actually, I shouldn't say we know. There, there are different opinions as to what the word teku means, but it isn't Roshi Tevot. What does teku mean? The standard interpretation is the one that appears here in source number three, that teku is the same as tekum which is, it should stand. Let the question stand. Apparently, there are a bunch of examples in Aramaic with this particular shorish, uh, but for words in general, uh, that the Aramaic leaves out a letter at the end. So the word teku is the same thing as tekum. 
Okay, there are a couple of other opinions that I'm not going to go through that appear in sources three and four. Um, medieval uh, um, dictionaries, the book called the Aruch and the follow-up Musafa Aruch, and the book called uh, Sefer HaTishbi. Just say what they have to say about the notricone interpretation. Notricone is like a, not abbreviation, a portmanteau word, as uh, Lewis Carroll would say, that really... Uh, Tiku uh, stands for Tishbi Ataritz Kushiot Vibayot, Dr. Binyamin Musafia in the 1600s says, you know what? Siman hu veino perush. It's a siman, it's a memory device, but that's not what the word means. It's a cute way to associate that we don't know the answer, to associate with something that we do know that Eliyahu will answer questions, but that's not what the word means. It's just a way to remember an idea. Rav Eliyahu Bacher, he was called that for some reason, uh, even when he was older, uh, the, the young man, he's a little bit harsher in the 1500s, and he says, who perush shall have This is just stupid, okay? That's not what the word means. The word has a meaning, and it has nothing to do with an abbreviation. Now, you could say, okay, but what? It could be that there's no ramification at all, but it could be that there is a ramification. Rav uh, Salvechik uh, once uh, told his shir that he once asked his father, of Moshe Salvechik, why the, the Gemara does not resolve uh, problems in so many cases, and instead it ends with teku, which Rav Salvechik translates as a stalemate. My father explained to me, a Jew must apprehend that he cannot understand and comprehend everything. Not only are some halachot ambiguous, but other areas are also not so clear-cut. Like Avraham obeyed Hashem, even though he didn't fully understand what, um, uh, what Hashem, was, uh, what Hashem uh, wanted, or why Hashem wanted it that way. So you could argue the basis of faith ultimately is, uh, is teku, meaning try to understand. If you can't understand, then do it anyway. But then Rabbi Salvechik adds, and it wouldn't hurt if a rabbi possessed the courage and resoluteness to admit to teku. Because if you, somebody asks you a question and you don't know the answer, you can make up an answer. Or you could say, I don't know. And then you could add, I'll get back to you. You know, I'll look it up. But a lot of people have never heard their rabbi say, I don't know. And Rabbi Salvechik is saying, that's a good, it's a good character trait. So just on this, Rabbi Ellie Fisher, uh, who was in JLIC uh, with me and my wife uh, back a number of years ago, Back, he used to have, now he lives in Modi'in, and he's the editor of the Pinine Halacha uh, English series. But he used to have a blog called On the Contrary, and he called himself Ad Rabbi for ADD Rabbi. And at the time, the blog was anonymous. And he wrote a, a polemical blog post about Teku. And he says, if you believe the abbreviation myth, so you're saying our knowledge is in, insufficient. But at some point, the tools for discovering the correct answer will be restored to us. But that's not what teku means. And he goes on to say it means it will stand. Uh, it is balanced. He's saying the danger of believing the abbreviation that it's cop-out. It's saying we don't have access to the answers, but they're waiting in heaven for us. All we do, we just, let's just daven, daven for Mashiach and Eliyahu coming with Mashiach. And then the answers which are there waiting for us will all be revealed to us. And Rabbi Fisher suggests, but if you understand teku, what it actually means, what the pshat is, teku, the question stands. That means that this question 
is one of those questions that simply do not have cut and dried answers. And you know what? Even after Eliyahu shows up, we might not know the answer to certain things. There's such a thing as being able to live with ambiguity, to live with the lack of complete knowledge. And Rabbi Fisher suggests that that is an exercise in intellectual humility. Okay, I don't know if you get all that, if you have to get all that from, from Teku, but uh, I think it's interesting and, uh, and thought-provoking. Okay, some people might find th this next one uh, a little personal. Ellis Island officials made my family change their last name, okay? We've all heard, we all have this story, or at least those of us who, whose ancestors went through Ellis Island. Everybody knows that the family name used to be, uh, in the example here from Dr. Dara Horn, used to be Rogershevsky, but the immigration officer couldn't understand his accent, so he just wrote down Rogers, and that became the family name. Okay, Dr. Dara Horn. Um, is a uh, professor of Judaic studies who also writes novels, um, and she's written a bunch of interesting things. Uh, so in this article called The Myth of Ellis Island and Other Tales of Origin, she mentions tales of origin of America, which is this one, of Spain, which I hope to do next week, the four captives, and of Poland. And she compares them. So she points out that this story, you know, oh, my ancestor's uh, name last name was changed by the immigration officials, that is fiction. And that's not just Dr. Darahorn. When we're done, just go to Google and look up family name change Ellis Island. And everything that you get in your Google results, it will all say the same thing, which is that anybody who says that, I understand that's your family story, but it doesn't fit with the facts, which is, during the time that Ellis Island was the main immigrant absorption center in New York, the highest standards of professionalism were demanded of those who worked there. All the inspectors were required to know at least two languages. There were hundreds of auxiliary interpreters. Very unlikely that they would misunderstand uh, a basic uh, Russian or Polish whatever name. But more importantly is Ellis Island officers never wrote down the names of the people who came through. That was not their job. Their job was just to work from the manifest of a ship, just to make sure that, that there's a person standing in front of them who corresponds with somebody who was on the list coming from the ship. Here's uh, one such uh, inspection card, just a quick uh, personal family thing. This is the, uh, the card of uh, my mother's mother's mother, uh, Eva Sapphire, uh, later Pollock, from uh, 1914. You see, you have, uh, it says the, the name of the, uh, the ship that she was on. And, uh, and here at the back of the cards that she was vaccinated. Some of us still carry vaccination cards. Anyway, uh, the, her family name actually was not changed at Ellis Island. But to say that, oh, yes, well, I heard that my great-great-grandfather's name was changed at Ellis Island by the immigration officials. Guess what? They didn't do that. They didn't have the power to do that. Of course. Dr. Horn goes on to say, many Jewish immigrants' names were changed upon coming to America, but without exception, they changed the names themselves. And there were very good reasons to do so. Early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s, America was not as philo-Semitic as it is now. America was not so uh, open to other people's cultures. A lot of people from all different cultures Americanize their names just to be able to get ahead. We don't have, there's no point in, in, in complaining about it. But what Dr. Horn finds fascinating is that so many otherwise rational American Jews 
cling to this urban legend, stubbornly defending it long after those ancestors have passed away. It's taken on a near sacred status, passed down along with more general stories of national identity, like Yitzia Mitzrayim. And she goes on to suggest a lot of articles on this topic, but this is the only one that, that tries to like psych, psychologize, analyze why, why this is such a big deal for, for so many American Jews. She suggests that, well, it's like the Midrash that says that the, the Jews, and there are many variations of this Midrash, the Jews deserve to be redeemed from Egypt because they didn't change their names. Aha! So you see? If your if my ancestor changed their name, maybe that's a that would have been a bad thing. Maybe that would have been them trying to assimilate, and I don't want to imagine my ancestor as trying to assimilate. So, in other words, my ancestors taught me to be proud of being Jewish. So I'm embarrassed. Many people might think, on some level, I'm embarrassed of thinking that my ancestor tried to to uh, to change their name. Doctor Horn basically says that, like, you know. There were, there were good reasons for it, and that's okay. It's not a big deal to accept that if your ancestor changed their name when they came to America, it wasn't changed for them. They chose to do so, and that's okay. One, one briefly, just one more article on this topic. This is from uh, uh, Marion Smith, now retired. She used to be the senior historian for the United States Immigration and Naturalization Service. So like, this is, this is her area of expertise, and she points out something that Dr. Horn did not say, but Dr. Horn actually refers to this article in a footnote. Until 1906, only if somebody went to court and had their name officially changed would there be any record of it, okay? Meaning lots of immigrants changed their names, but they didn't go to court to do it. They didn't have to until 1906. Without any record, immigrants and their descendants are left to construct their own explanations of a name change. Okay, so old immigrants would say, oh, yeah, it was changed at Ellis Island. But this historian suggests that, yeah, you might take this literally as if there was a clerk at Ellis Island, but consider another interpretation. That immigrant was remembering their initial confrontation with American culture. So when they think Ellis Island, they think finding a way around the city, learning to speak English, going to school. Uh, all of those experiences were the Ellis Island experience. So in that sense... It was correct. The name was changed at Ellis Island. But if great-great-great-grandparents were still here, and if you uh, pin them down, are they sure it was changed by the clerk? They might actually admit that, no, it wasn't changed by the clerk. It, you know, it was changed at Ellis Island by me. Anyway, I just thought that was interesting, and uh, especially with Dara, uh, Professor Horn's uh, additional uh, uh, contribution that lots of people are very defensive about it. Let's go skip to the last page, then we'll come back. Here's a misunderstood text, which is a little bit different from the others we've done in the previous sessions, in which there is a Gemara or a Midrash that is misinterpreted here. Has anybody heard this one? Hey, there's a Midrash that says that the first woman was not Chava, but really Lilith, Lilith in Hebrew. She was too feminist for Adam, and that's why Hashem had to create Chava. Have you heard that one? Well, guess what? There is a text that says it, but it isn't a rabbinic text. This text is misogynistic. This text is, uh, was written in order to undermine the Torah's approach to Chava and to say that, well, let's look at the story. Let's look at it right now. I call it the fake Midrash, or maybe you could call it National Lampoon's Midrash. I'll explain briefly uh, in a couple minutes what this 
what this is. This is not the book of Ben Sirah. This is a later book called The Alphabet of Ben Sirah. And you'll find in the book called Oter Midrashim by Eisenstein, J.D. Eisenstein, except that it's not a midrash. It's a folktale. Yeah, it's written in Hebrew. Here's what it says. Again, I'm already tipping you off. This is not a midrash. This is a parody of a midrash. When God created Adam, God said, well, it's not good for man to be alone. Okay, so far, so good. So he created the first woman from the earth. Now, wait a minute. That's not Chava. Chava was created from Adam's tzela, whether that means the, the rib or the side. No, no, no. This is a new story. God created the first woman from the earth like Adam and called her Lilit. And right away, Adam and Lilit started arguing with each other about what? About sex. Lilit said, I'm not going to be on the bottom. And Adam said, oh, I can't be on the bottom because you need to be on the bottom, which is not exactly an argument. That's just a restatement. And she said, but we're equal. We're both from the, the earth, which is correct. Adam had no excuse. They wouldn't listen to each other. When Lilith saw that Adam uh, was not going to listen to her, she uttered the uh, ineffable name of God. She, using, uh, which was some sort of magical thing, flew into the air, and it's not mentioned here, but she became the mother of the demons. I'll come back to that point. Then Adam turned to God and said, Hey, God, the woman you gave me ran away, as if like it's totally on her. And that's when God created Chava from Adam's side in order to be subservient to him. Okay? This is like a just-so story. Uh, is this story misogynistic? Yeah. But I don't have to defend it. You know why? Because I know what this book is. This book was dismissed by no less than the Rambam. In other words, this was like the uh, 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 zines or Sama's dad, like like uh, bootleg uh, fake midrashim that circulating in the in the er, early Middle Ages. And the Rambam says there's a lot of stories attributed to to Ben Sira that that they're, they're just a waste of time with, with stupid stupidity. And the Aruch also very very early Rishon. Uh, he says th th this book it has things that, that, that don't make any sense and the rabbis don't like it. But you know what? You can read this book in English if you want. You can find online the book with a very unfortunate title, Rabbinic Fantasies. It's a bad title because, first of all, fantasy is a genre of literature, but fantasies tends to have more salacious connotations. But rabbinic is a totally wrong word because this book, which is edited by a couple of professors, is a collection of three or four Jewish folk tales. It's not rabbinic. So the uh, Rabbi Dr. Norman uh, Bronznik, who wrote the introduction within this book, introduction to the full English translation of the Alphabet of Mansira, he explains what it is. It's composed in the style of a midrash. It treats biblical characters and rabbinic motifs irreverently. Some scholars conclude this work was composed as an anti-rabbinic tract. It may be one of the earliest literary parodies in Hebrew literature. Now, what exactly, like what? Here's what Professor uh, Siegel, we've seen him before, from Calgary. Here's what he writes in his article about Lilith. I'm not actually recommending that you read this, this book, but just a couple of things. What's so bad about this book? The heroes of Tanakh and the Talmud are portrayed in the most perverse colors. Just for example, Ben Sira, who wrote, to whom is attributed a book of Proverbs, he is said, according to this book, to have come from an incestuous union between Yirmiyahu and his daughter. 
Yoshua is described as a buffoon, too fat to ride a horse. David Amelech is a heartless and spiteful figure who delights in the death of his son Absalom. This is this is basically like uh, I don't know the Red Tent. This is like somebody rewriting Tanakh or writing their own midrashim in order to make characters uh, in in Tanakh look bad. The book consistently sounds the praises of hypocritical and insincere behavior. Shocking and abhorrent. So much so that the question is, why would anybody have written such a book? It's not, in other words, yes, it's a parody of a medrash, but it's so mean-spirited. It's mean-spirited towards women all through the book. It's also mean-spirited towards the great the great uh, heroes of Jewish tradition. Like, whoever wrote it had a real chip on their shoulder against rabbis as well as against his wife or maybe his mom. I don't know. Um, but the point is, this book, the Alphabet of Ben-Sira, is the only source of this story that imagines that Lilith was the first woman. The clever thing that this author did was he didn't make it up completely. He took an idea, which we don't have time to go through now, but an idea that appears in two midrashim called Chava HaRishona, that maybe Hashem made uh, an early version of Chava, did not bring her to life, and the question is why, but that there was such a thing, maybe an earlier version, the author of Alphabet of Sira took that and combined it with the idea that everybody in the Gemara and who lived in Bavel later knew that Lilith was the name of the queen of the demons. Look up Lilith. Lilith is not made up for this. Lilith was the, the main female demon, just like Ashmedai was the main male demon. There's Babylonian mythology. What the author of Alphabet Ben Sira did was he took the idea of this female demon and twisted it into a misogynistic story. Oh, why is Lilith the female demon? Because she wanted to be equal to her husband. Aha! The message is women should not be equal to uh, to their husbands. Like I said, don't take my word for it. If you want, by all, you know, at your own risk, read through the alphabet of Ben-Sira, but there's really no question that it is not a medrash. It's a spiteful, uh, ret- it's an anti-medrash. So, and this is the only source of the story of Lilith as, uh, as someone who was the, uh, uh, the, first, uh, the first woman. So as Professor Siegel points out, the real problem is not that there was this obscure book that was popular in the early Middle Ages. The real problem is that, with all due respect to J.D. Eisenstein, who collected a lot of good material, the problem is he included it in his book, in his popular compendium of rabbinic leg- legends over here in source number three, Otzer HaMidrashim. Otzer HaMidrashim includes some Midrashim and includes a lot of folk tales. A lot of things that were not written by rabbis, and this is especially anti-rabbinic, but it's in a book called Otzer HaMidrashim. It must be a Medrash. And it's only if you actually go through it carefully that you'll realize that's not a Medrash. So instead, so let, in the early 1970s, when Jewish feminists wanted to, make, to create a Jewish feminist magazine, what do they call the magazine? Lilith. They, and they quoted Eisenstein because they wanted to not just rebel against Jewish tradition. They wanted to find precedents in Jewish tradition. They thought they were following a source in Jewish tradition. Guess what? It's not a Jewish tradition. It, it is not a rabbinic tradition, I should say. Um, you know, just like not every Jew who does art is creating Jewish art. Not every musician who's Jewish is creating Jewish music. So if somebody writes uh, a parody of a medrash, I'm sorry, I don't have to defend that. So this text is misunderstood 
Not that people think it's, mis mis it's misogynistic, but really it isn't. No, 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 it's totally misogynistic, but it isn't a rabbinic text. Therefore, we don't have to worry about it. Um, let's uh, wrap up with Stranger Than Fiction. This week is Parshat Nasso. Parshat Nasso has 176 psukim. It's really long because of the, the section of the Nesim that's repeated 12 times. It's the longest Parshat. Okay, is that significant? Not necessarily, but the longest parak of Tehillim Tehillim Kuf Yatet is exactly 176 psukim also. Uh, that's, that's pretty unusual. And now, if you pick up a Gemara Bava Batra, which is the heaviest Mesechet, and you turn to the last daf, you'll see that, wow, lo and behold, the last, one second, the last daf of Bava Batra is... Drum roll. Kufai and Vav. Can you see it? Kufai and Vav. Lo and behold, it's 176. Wow. Is that a coincidence? Is there such a thing as coincidence? Is there anything deep in, in this? Short answer is no. Not necessarily. But, first of all, it's not quite fair to say that NASA, that, uh, Bava Batra has 176 dapim. No, that's why the person who asked this question in Miyodea, um, he formulated it as, or she formulated it as the longest tractate of the Bavli ends on daf 176. Why, why is that significant? Because Bava Batra only has 175 pages. Hey, remember last week we talked about the Gemara starts with daf bet? Yes, the last daf of Bava Batra is kuf ayin vav, but the first daf is not aleph, it's bet. So really, Bava Batra only has 175 pages, unless you include the uh, um, the uh, the frontispiece. So I didn't copy people making suggestions how really it's very deep and the, the gematria of 176. And I don't know about you, but I'm not really interested in gematria. But what I thought was interesting was there. I didn't find a source who says this explicitly, but there is a way to remember this number. Okay. All you have to do is rem remember that the longest Masechet of the Bavli, the longest parak of Tehillim, um, or the, the, the parak in Tanakh with the longest, with the largest number of, uh, of psukim, is the same number of, of psukim as the psukim in the longest parasha. The question is, how do you remember that number? And the answer is very simple. All you have to do is remember that that parak of Tehillim, Kuf Yudet, what is it? Starts with an aleph, and then another aleph, and another aleph, etc., etc. It's eight alephs, then eight bets, eight gimels, etc., etc. Don't want anybody trick you into saying that parak of Tehillim if you have, if you don't have that much time. Uh, in any case, all you have to do is remember that the aleph bet, not counting sharashim, the aleph bet has twenty-two letters. If if you remember that. In Tehillim Kuf Yatet, every letter of the alphabet gets repeated eight times. And if you can uh, remember or do your mental math that 22 times 8 is 176, then you know the answer to the question of how many psukim are there in the longest parsha? What's the mesechet or the mesechet with the, with the largest number of dapim? What's the last daf? Kuf Ayin Vav, because it's 176. I personally do not think that this is intrinsically significant, but it's a good memory device. And uh, you know what? Memory devices uh, do not go without saying.
somebody also points out in the comments in uh, on Miodea that Bavbatra technically is not even its own Masechet. Bavbatra means the final gate because originally there was Masechet Nizikin, but it was so enormous that it was divided into three. The titles of which are first gate, middle gate, last gate in Aramaic. Bavakama, Bavamitsia, Bavabatra. So really, you could argue it's not its own Masechet. Anyway, it's not the point. The point is, if you want to remember how many, what's the, the, what's the number of the last daf of Bavabatra? Oh, it's 22 letters of the alphabet times 8. Oh, it must be uh, Kufai and Vav. Anyway, that's all for now. I'm go- uh, thank you for, uh, for joining me. I'm going to uh, end the recording now, and then I will uh, go through the uh, the comments. Okay.